You are listening to It's Midnight Somewhere with DJs Mistress McCutcheon and The Wasteland. It's midnight somewhere. It's midnight. It's midnight Hi, this is Mistress McCutcheon coming to you from downtown Toronto, and I'm, of course, joined by, from the other side of Toronto, my partner in crime, The Wasteland. Hello. (laughs) I don't know what that was. (laughs) It was a funny voice. Uh, I do those sometimes. Hey, we need some funny voices. We need a little levity in these uh, crazy, weird, chaotic times, because this is not the time travel I signed up for. No. No, not at all. Well, hopefully we can take folks' minds off of the crazy that is happening right now by talking about women in horror. Because women are good in horror? I don't I don't know. <laughs> I'm still a little hungover, so forgive me, everyone. I, I, I had a gig last night. I uh, overindulged. I don't regret anything. <laughs> you had fun. I had the fun. Good. We all need the fun sometimes. Sometimes you have to have the fun in order to to find the purpose of the life. (laughs) Otherwise, it's just dystopian nightmare, and that's all we're living in right now. But somehow, horror movies have been just the right thing to uh, take your mind off stuff, because some fake horror just alleviates the real horror right now. This pandemic isn't even fucking over yet, for fuck's sake. No. No, and I, I don't know. I, I, I don't want. I don't want to talk about current politics because we're here to talk about fun things. Let's talk about horror. First of all, let's talk about horror. <laughs> first of all, let's talk about the runner. So, what'd you think of it? You know, I really enjoyed it. For folks who are not in the know, Boy Harsher created a soundtrack and a film, which is available on Shutter here in Canada and in the U.S. And what's really neat is that both Jay and Augustus have a background in film. And this it's 40 minutes long, and it's kind of like an extended music video. It's very meta. Uh, it's starring Chris, as, as far I don't know if I can pronounce her name, uh, Chris Esfandari, who is also the singer of King Woman, which if you like metal, check out King Woman. It's not particularly my flavor, but... I gave it a listen, and uh, I know folks are like, oh, yeah, King Woman. She's fantastic in this. She is on this murderous spree, and there's this very meta storyline going on with Boy Harsher in the film as themselves, as the band. And it's a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I, I enjoyed it, too. It's it's definitely more of like a video album going on. It's It's definitely got these as you said, meta bits where you see Boy Harsher like behind the scenes. I don't know if they're recording a video within the video or what was going on, but it's, it's, it's a good, interesting juxtaposition to what's actually happening with the characters in the film. And it's done in such a style that it's harkening back to the 1980s, which nostalgia right now there's a lot of comfort food in uh in in consuming that sort of nostalgia content the soundtrack itself is pretty fantastic and uh, i think we should drop in a song how about tower first track right off it how the movie opens awesome let's do it (laughs) 
So in talking about women in horror, we decided to break up the show into a couple different parts. We'd like to start off with the glamour goals. First up, Morticia Adams. Now, Morticia originated from the cartoon family that was illustrated by Charles Adams in 1938, and she originally didn't have a name. She was the original glamour ghoul, represented as a witch with long straight hair and a form-fitting gown with a tentacle-like hem at the bottom. She wouldn't be called Morticia until the television show in the 1960s. Now, Morticia Adams has been played by Carolyn Jones on the TV show in 1964, Angelica Houston in The Addams Family in 1991, and its sequel, Addams Family Values, in 1993. Daryl Hannah was Morticia in the direct-to-video film, Addams Family Reunion, in 1998, and Catherine Zeta-Jones is the next actress slated to portray Morticia in the upcoming Netflix series, Wednesday, which may be out sometime later this year. So, since we're in the 60s, if you're going to talk about Morticia, you then have to talk about none other than Lily Munster, played by Yvonne DiCarlo, uh, who is a Canadian actress. So, you know, for our newfound home. CanCon! Woohoo! CanCon! So, Lily Munster was kind of a stark contrast from Morticia, as the Munsters and the Addams Family premiered on television in the same week in 1964. Uh, while the Adams family was based on Charles Adams' cartoon from the 30s at, uh, about an eccentric family, the Munsters were actual monsters based on iconic figures in horror, being Dracula, Frankenstein's monster, and, and the werewolf. Um, Morticia had a darker humor and sexiness about her, and the show was the first in the 60s to imply that Morticia and Gomez had a sex life, which was kind of a big deal. Oh, yeah. While Lily... <laughs> Yeah, and then Lily Munster was more of a vampire uh, June Cleaver, uh, as the show was created by the same people who who produced Leave It to Beaver. Um, So they had a very similar uh, feel between the two characters, except, you know, being a vampire. (laughs) Well, that and and Lily Munster was more... I think there was there was something a little more wholesome about the Munsters, except for the fact that she'd have like this really fiery temper and she was mad at Herman all the time. Well, Herman was kind of a doof. I mean, really, he's he's kind of like Dick Van Dyke, but like, you know, Frankenstein's monster. <laughs> Fair. Okay, that's valid. <laughs> he's, you know, because he was always, Dick Van Dyke was just kind of tripping on things and always klutzy and Herman was just like walking into walls and breaking things. Right. So Lily's look was wildly different. Her long black hair was streaked with white, uh, probably to bring on the Bride of Frankenstein look. They wanted to carry that over to her. Um, And while her dress was uh, pale purple, although it appears white in black and white show. She sometimes had a cape that was ruched like a casket liner, and her skin, when depicted in color, was green, which I think was also to play off of the Bride of Frankenstein. Yeah, that makes sense. Next up, we are going to be talking about Vampira. Now, Mela Nermi was discovered at a Halloween party by producer Hunt Stromberg Jr., where she dressed as Charles Adams' matriarch. She became the first horror host and was asked to bring Mrs. Adams to life, but instead of doing a ripoff, she decided to reinterpret the character. She sexed things up by adding inspiration from the bondage magazine Bazaar with her tightly laced corset and long fingernails. 
Her show was initially called Dig Me Later, Vampira, but changed to The Vampira Show, and it was first aired on April 30th, 1954. Her show would only last a year. Shortly after the death of James Dean, she was abruptly canceled. Now, Mela Nermi and James Dean were really good friends, although some folks believe that they were more than that. Rumors had circulated that Vampira cursed James Dean via black magic based on a comment he made to a reporter that he, quote unquote, didn't date cartoons. There was also a postcard she had sent him as one of her morbid jokes of her sitting next to an open grave with the line, darling, come and join me. In the early 1960s, Nermi opened Vampira's Attic, an antiques boutique on Melrose Avenue. She had sold handmade jewelry and clothing there. She had also worked in installing linoleum flooring. She was also known for starring in the worst movie ever made in 1959, which was Plan 9 from Outer Space. It wasn't until 1981, Mela Nermi was asked to revive Vampira for a television series for KHJ-TV, but she ended up leaving the project due to creative differences. That's when Elvira stepped in. So prior to becoming the iconic Elvira, portrayed, of course, by none other than Cassandra Peterson, uh, she began her career as one of the youngest showgirls in Las Vegas. Uh, she was advised by none other than Elvis Presley that if she wanted to get somewhere with her career, she needed to get out of Las Vegas. So she traveled to Europe, where she sang in an Italian pop rock band and had a small role in a Fellini film titled uh, Roma. When she returned to the U.S., she appeared in some small TV roles at first and then later joined an improvisational comedy group. Uh called the Groundlings. Uh, And then she auditioned for the part of the horror hostess, and her character was similar to Vampira, uh, but raised by drag queens and with big bouffant hair, big, uh, you know, colorful eyes, the dagger in her belt, and her very iconic plunging neckline. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Boobs. Look, yeah, boobs. (laughs) Who would have thought that would have worked? Uh... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so, in 1981, when Elvira's movie Macabre aired, Nermi delivered a cease and desist to the station before suing for $10 million for using her likeness, but eventually lost the lawsuit. Nermi held a massive grudge for the rest of her life and had wanted to hire the actress and singer Lola Falana for the role of Vampira. Um, Peterson claimed that Elvira was nothing like Vampira outside of having black hair and a black dress. And unlike Nermi, Cassandra Peterson was able to gain control of the character. When her contract would be renegotiated every year with the television station, she would ask for a raise or more control. The rights to start a fan club, the rights to sell merch, and to go to conventions until she eventually owned the character outright. When the station went under due to fraud, she was very lucky to lock in the rights to the character before the station lost its broadcasting license. To this day, Elvira's image can be seen on a vast array of merchandise. Uh, She just released her memoir, Cruelly Yours, last fall. Peterson has also been a lifelong advocate for animal rights. I have to say, it would have been really interesting if uh, Mela Nermi had gotten her way and we could have had a black vampira. In a, in a parallel universe, I would really have liked to have seen what that would have been like if Lola Falana was cast. That would be the time travel I would sign up for. I agree. I agree. <laughs> Nothing against Miss Peterson. I adore her. We but- 
do. <laughs> Next up on our list, Lydia Dietz. The strange and unusual girl in the 1988 film Beetlejuice moves into a haunted house with her stepmother and father. This was the film that launched Winona Ryder's career and endeared her as a favorite actress among goths. The film portrays Lydia as a person who is isolated and can communicate with the dead. She summons the undead con man Beetlejuice in order to help the Maitlands, the ghost she becomes friends with, and he tries to trick her into marrying him so he can come back to the land of the living. There was a cartoon version of Beetlejuice as well that ran from 1989 to 1991, and it portrays Lydia and Beetlejuice as pals who have wacky adventures between the real world and the neither world. And Monster High Dolls created a Lydia Dietz doll just last year. And I found it on eBay, like the starting price for it was like $300. And I think it's on sale on Amazon for like 700 bucks. Damn. Exactly. So it it seems fitting to uh, bookend this whole segment with uh, Wednesday Adams. We started with Morticia and we've gotten progressively younger. And so we'll go with Wednesday to round it out. Uh, She first appeared in The New Yorker, like her mother, and was the daughter of the eccentric family. Um, When it was adapted to the 1964 television series, Charles Adams gave her the name Wednesday, based on the nursery rhyme line, Wednesday's child is full of woe. The idea for the name was supplied by the actress and poet Joan Blake, an acquaintance of Adams. Wednesday's most notable features are her pale skin and long, dark braided pigtails. She seldom shows any emotion and is generally bitter. Wednesday usually wears a black dress with a white collar, black stockings, and black shoes. Over the years, many actresses have portrayed Wednesday, but the most notable are Christina Ricci, who, like Winona Ryder, launched her career by playing her in the Addams Family movies, and Chloe Grace Moritz, Moritz? I I can never say her name correctly, sorry, Um, who has voiced her in the animated films. She will be played by Jenny Ortega in the upcoming Netflix series, Wednesday, directed by none other than Tim Burton, who remains to be seen if he could shoehorn Johnny Depp or his wife into that one. And the story will focus on her days as a student at Nevermore Academy. How much you want to bet they're teachers? I have no idea if they're going to make an appearance or not. I'm also betting that it's probably going to come out in October, so it'll be around in time for Halloween. You, you, you think they'll be that obvious? So on the yes. nose. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> All right. So our next segment, we want to talk about the women behind the camera. What I wanted to start off with was a fun fact, actually. The 1982 movie Slumber Party Massacre was actually written and directed by women, Rita Mae Brown actually wrote it as a parody of slasher flicks, but thanks to producer Roger Corman, he added a bunch of nudity to it and gave the film its title. Apparently, Slumber Party Massacre was remade last year and actually has a 100% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. That's, I guess I got to go see that now. I definitely, yeah, notes need to be compared. <laughs> and, and just because we were talking about it earlier, I have to mention here, the, the Slumber Party Massacre 2 movie poster slash box art. If you're not familiar with it, folks, look it up. It is literally the most 80s box art cover you will ever see. <laughs> yes, I 100% agree. It's it, it just epitomizes everything of its time. So that'll bring us to Deborah Hill, 
the co-writer and producer of Halloween. This horror pioneer met John Carpenter when she was the script supervisor on the film Assault on Precinct 13. They decided to collaborate on Halloween, plotting the scares with a story about a babysitter being terrorized by a killer. She wrote the first draft of the film, and this was very much a 50-50 collaboration, although Carpenter gets more of the recognition. She maintained control on one of the most profitable independent films made with an inexperienced crew and stepped in when needed. It's her hand wielding the knife that kills Michael Myers' sister. The 1978 film Halloween was shot in just 20 days on a budget of only $300,000, which I think nowadays is like what they spend on parking. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) uh, And it became a $70 million box office hit. So nice return on investment. (laughs) Indeed. Uh, She also worked with John Carpenter on The Fog Halloween and Halloween 2 and was a successful Hollywood producer with 32 other titles under her belt. Uh, She did, however, die at the age of 54 from cancer. And without Deborah Hill, though, we wouldn't have had Halloween. Or Jamie Lee Curtis. Touche. Next on our list is Jackie Kong. Jackie Kong is a director, producer and screenwriter best known for her cult film Blood Diner. She was introduced to the film world in an early age, and her first feature film was The Being in 1983. It's pretty remarkable as a recent college graduate with no filmmaking experience and a small budget, she wooed Martin Landau to act in her film. In spite of the film's critical and commercial failure, The Being has a small cult following, and she would follow up in 1984 with a comedy called Night Patrol and then Blood Diner in 1987. Blood Diner was originally going to be a sequel to the 1963 film Blood Feast, but then became its own thing. If you're unfamiliar with the story, it's about two brothers with a strange loyalty to their serial killer uncle. They set up a restaurant as a front for them to kill women in order to use their body parts to summon forth the goddess Sheetar. It was shocking to audiences and critics that this was created by a woman and the gore and the comedy go over the top. She recently crowdfunded a new horror comic book series called Spend the Night, which is due out this year sometime in May. And that'll bring us to our next entry, who is probably the person I learned the most about in doing research for this episode, and that was Millicent Patrick. Uh, Wouldn't be surprised if you're not familiar with her name, and if you are, kudos to you. She was an American actress, makeup artist, special effects designer, and animator. She was a pioneer as one of the first female animators at Disney in 1940. Her work as a color animator can be seen in four of the sequences in the film Fantasia. And she also created the animated creature Chernabog, featured in the last sequence of the film, Night on Bald Mountain. During her time at Disney, she also worked on the film Dumbo before leaving the studio in 1941. After leaving Disney, she began modeling at trade shows as a promotional model. And then in 1947, while waiting outside of a hotel, she met agent William Hawks, who began representing her and obtaining small acting roles in studio productions. She began working behind the scenes when she first met the head of the Universal Studios makeup department during an acting job when she showed him her sketches. She became the first woman to work in a special effects makeup department and is credited with contributing to the pirate faces in Against All Flags. The makeup of Jack Palance in Sign of the Pagan, part of the design of the It Came From Out of Space globs, Mr. Hyde in Abbott and Costello, Meet Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, the Metal Luna Mutant in This Island Earth, and was a mask maker for the Mole People. 
And then in 1953, Patrick designed The Gill Man for the film The Creature from the Black Lagoon. Many sources say that she was really the person responsible for creating the iconic monster, and Bud Westmore stole the credit away from her. But the truth is likely a little more complicated than that. Robert Skotak, noted special effects artist and science fiction fan, told Tor.com that the Gillsman design was most realistically a collaborative effort between several members of the Universal Makeup Department, which Patrick did play an important role. Then the marketing department stepped in and put her on a press tour, dubbed the beauty who created the beast because the 50s. Um, right. <laughs> when she returned to Los Angeles from the press tour, Patrick was informed, though, that she no longer worked for Universal Studios. Having been let go due to Westmore's jealousy over Patrick being associated with the creation of the Gill Man, after leaving Universal, Patrick never worked behind the scenes again and returned to small acting roles. Uh, Patrick then developed Parkinson's disease in 1988 and later breast cancer. She died on February 24th, 1998 at a hospice care center in Roseville, California. Next on our list is V. Neal. V. Neal is an American makeup artist with over 80 credits to her name and three Academy Awards, including for her work on Beetlejuice. While she's not exclusively within the horror realm, the breadth of her work is remarkable, including the designs for the vampires in The Lost Boys and the character designs for Beetlejuice. There's actually a video on YouTube of V. Neal describing her process on Beetlejuice. Michael Keaton requested not to look like himself, and they decided to make his nose crooked, give him bad teeth and acrylic nails that he had to wear for two weeks. He had to be creepy, but still funny. Beetlejuice was apparently the first film that had extensive airbrushed makeup, and they cleverly designed the characters of the afterlife so you could tell how they died. Winona Ryder's transformation to Lydia was pretty dramatic as well. Vigneault took the then-blonde and average-looking girl and transformed her into the goth icon we know and love. She was also a judge on sci-fi series Face Off, and she founded her own makeup school in Los Angeles. So, of course, you can't talk about women in horror without talking about the actual actresses, the people who bring the characters to life. Uh, so, first, we're going to start with Miss Barbara Crampton. Born in Levittown, New York, uh, started acting in school plays and went on to study acting in high school. She attended Castleton State College in Vermont, graduating with a Bachelor of Arts degree in Theater Arts. After graduation, Crampton made a brief stop in New York, where she appeared as Cordelia in King Lear for the American Theater of Actors. She was a theater arts major at Castleton State College from 1976 to 1981. From there, she moved to L.A. and landed a role on Days of Our Lives in 1983, and then made her film debut in the movie Body Double. But the movies that put her on the radar in horror circles were, of course, The Reanimator and From Beyond, which earned her a Saturn Award nomination for Best Actress. Crampton is still acting today and can be seen in Jacob's Wife and Creepshow on Shudder. Next on our list, Linnea Quigley. Linnea Quigley was born in Davenport, Iowa, but moved to L.A. in the 1970s. She was working at a Jack LaLanne spa and was encouraged to try out modeling and acting. She had some small roles in commercials and films, but her breakout role was the character Trash in the 1985 cult classic Return of the Living Dead. She is a bona fide B-movie queen with 200-plus titles under her belt, including cult hits like Hollywood Chainsaw Hookers and Night of the Demons. 
There's also her hour-long Linnea Quigley's Horror Workout, which is a ridiculous time capsule of the 1980s that was shot in two days with a low budget. She has also written two books, the Linnea Quigley Bio and Chainsaw Book and I'm Screaming as Fast as I Can, My Life in B-Movies. And like Cassandra Peterson, she is an advocate for animal rights, is a vegan, and has several rescue dogs. So you can't talk about women in horror without talking about, of course, Linda Blair. Linda Blair was born in St. Louis, Missouri, and started as a child model for catalogs and appeared in over 70 commercials. Her first film was in 1970 in The Way We Live Now, but of course she is best known as Regan in The Exorcist. The role earned her a Golden Globe for Best Supporting Actress and an Academy Award nomination for Best Supporting Actress. Her rise to fame was a mixed bag because while the film was a huge success, she received death threats after the premiere, and some people couldn't separate the actress from the character. Warner Brothers hired police to live with the Blair family 24-7 for six months. But once her promotional job for the film ended, fanatics still threatened her over this blasphemous role, and her family had to take matters into their own hands and hide out. She moved on to other films, such as TV movie Born Innocent and a disaster film Airplane, 1975. And of course, The Exorcist sequel, but she was blacklisted by Hollywood after being involved in a drug bust when she was just 18. From there, her roles were limited to B-movies and TV appearances. She tried to break free from her victim roles by auditioning for the 1980 film Blue Lagoon, but lost that role to Brooke Shields. Linda Blair is also a vegan and animal rights activist who runs the Linda Blair World Heart Foundation, and she lives on her two-acre sanctuary full-time in California. Next on our list is Jennifer Tilly. She was born in Harbor City in Los Angeles, but was raised mostly in British Columbia, Canada. She holds a Bachelor of Arts degree in theater from Stevens College in Missouri. And while her first film was in 1984, her breakout role was in 1989 in The Fabulous Baker Boys. She has had a wide variety of films on her CV and is well known for her voiceover work, like the voice of Celia from Monsters, Inc. and Bonnie Swanson on Family Guy. But what puts her into the horror fan circle is her role as Tiffany in the Child's Play franchise. She's been in Bride of Chucky, Seed of Chucky, Cult of Chucky, and Curse of Chucky, and is currently in the new TV series from Sci-Fi that premiered in October last year. If you haven't checked out the new series, it's really well done and has great representation with the gay lead in the story. So, of course, we would be wildly inappropriate if we didn't talk about the next actress, and that is none other than Jamie Lee Curtis. Jamie Lee Curtis is the daughter of actress Janet Lee and actor Tony Curtis and made her film acting debut as Laurie Strode in Halloween. This established her as a screen queen, and she thereafter appeared in a string of horror films, including The Fog, Prom Night, Terror Train, all in 1980, and Road Games in 1981. She reprised her role of Laurie in the sequels, Halloween 2, and Halloween H2O 20 years later, which is, uh, I unfortunately saw in a theater, don't recommend. Uh, (laughs) Halloween Resurrection in 2002, and reprised her role of Laurie Strode, and served as executive producer on Halloween in 2018, Halloween Kills in 2021, and the upcoming Halloween Ends 2022. She also appeared as the voice of the operator in Halloween 3, but was uncredited. Curtis's career has ranged widely outside the horror genre, but to get into all that would really be its own episode. That is true. And I think that wraps it up for this episode. Yeah. Yeah, those are, I think, I think to really, you know, 
we could be here all day talking about individuals in in the genre, but I think we hit we're trying to concentrate on some of the, the bigger names and maybe some of the ones you didn't know were bigger behind the scenes. Yeah, there's uh, there's definitely a lot of rabbit holes to dive into uh, in taking a look at this. And uh, again, something about watching horror films has been a real uh, reprieve from everything that's going on, just to escape a little bit because it, it's it's been a really trying time, and I'm really sick of that phrase. But you need to stay aware, you need to stay focused, and you also need to take a moment to breathe so that you can come back to it and, and be ready to fight with whatever the fuck is going on now. I, I don't really have much to add to that other than, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, we're really glad that you're here and giving us a listen. And we want to thank Robin Bright, the writer of our theme music, as well as Marion Green, who is the artist behind our artwork and logo. We do have stickers and buttons. They're available at morbidoutlook.com slash sticker or morbidoutlook.com slash button. And of course, our producer, Justin Minister, who has been tirelessly working to uh, make us better podcasters and not sound like a bunch of chuckle fucks because sometimes we're just ridiculous. We are also streaming every Friday night at 10 p.m. Eastern Time on Twitch at twitch.tv slash prophecy underscore online. And we've got a live event coming up soon. So just keep your eyes peeled for those invites on Facebook. And if you're in the area, come by and say hello. Until next time. Night. This podcast was almost called Russian Worship, Go Fuck Yourself.